Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 28, 28 to 32 today. This is part two from last week. We just read the second part, but you'll recall last week Jesus began this confrontation with the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And uh, we're looking at the second half of that. These are individuals who are rank hypocrites. They are just rife with hypocrisy. And Jesus, uh, he begins to confront that. Before we jump into our text this morning, I'd like to just have a word of prayer, obviously for the Lord to open our minds to understand the word this morning. But also, as we have our summer outreach, different evangelistic events, kids clubs, VBS is approaching, I just encourage you all to grab one of these VBS prayer calendars. It's on the table in the foyer on your way out. Grab that in addition to your budget. And we need to, we need to be sure to lift up all our efforts this summer in prayer ahead of time, that the Spirit would go ahead of us, that the Lord would work and prepare the hearts and minds of those individuals we're trying to minister to, that our fruits, that our efforts would be fruitful. So today being the 24th, the calendar says that for today, says that we should be praying for all of those who will be team leaders to be identified and that their heart would be in it. They would have an eager and enthusiastic yes. So we still are looking for leaders, uh, different individuals to serve in, in our various outreaches. So uh, maybe the Lord is speaking to your heart this morning about those things. Regardless of whether or not you're free, you may have to work during the summer, and it may not be available to do it. But regardless, we need to go ahead and begin praying now for our team leaders. So let's just bow for a word of prayer and, and lift those things up before the Lord. Father, we just thank you. Lord, we thank you for how much you love us. We thank you, Lord, that your care for us is perfect. We thank you, Lord, that you know our every needs before we know them. And even before we've come to realize exactly what it is that we need, you have already made provision. Father, we have a need now. We have a need for workers, Lord, to go out into the vineyard to go out into the fields. Lord, you promised us that they were white unto harvest, that the season for harvesting was upon us. Lord, you told us that the problem was not harvest being ready, but whether or not there would be laborers who would do your will. So Lord, we pray, God, for our leaders. We don't know who they are just yet. We don't know who it is that's going to volunteer for BBS or Kids Club or any of the other different outreaches and evangelistic events that we have this summer, but we pray, God, that you would touch them, that you would put a burden on them, Father, to do all that they can to see these precious families come to know your Son, Jesus. We pray, God, that you would just burden them with that, and that you would begin to prepare them even now. When the invitation comes, when the request is made, when the big ask is presented, will you go into the field? Will you, Lord, send these people into your harvest? We pray, Father, that you would do it. We pray for Jill and Lynn and Kyla and all the others that are preparing even now. Father, we pray that you would bless their efforts as they get ready for VBS and Kids Club this summer. Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, in all of us, there is always at least a little bit of hypocrisy. Father, we thank you for your son's encounter with these chief priests and scribes and Pharisees, these elders, who look so good on the outside. 
but we're so, so far from You on the inside. We pray, Father, that as Your Son confronts them, that we would feel the gentle, loving correction this morning from You for any area of our lives that we are secretly hiding away from You. We pray, Father, that You would draw it out, that You would give us the courage and the strength and the faith to trust You and to give all of ourselves to You. We pray that Your Spirit would go before us, that You would illuminate the text, that You would open our minds to receive what it is that You have to say to us this morning. We ask these things in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. I have several good friends who are really good in the kitchen. Ryan Blyenberg is one of them. Frank Caputo is another. He's Italian. It's like required. If you're Italian, you have to be great in the kitchen. I am not Italian, so I am not great in the kitchen. I, that's my claim. That's my excuse. You know, I'm not Italian, so you can't hold it against me if I am no good in the kitchen. My wife is amazing. One of the things that she bakes that I really enjoy is fresh bread. And I don't know if you've ever seen bread being made, but there's a whole bunch of ingredients. I'm going to quote some of them to you, but by no means this is an exhaustive list because, like I said, I'm no good at baking. From what I can observe, she puts some eggs, some milk. Of course, there's flour. And then, of course, there's a little bit of yeast that goes into it. Some other stuff, I'm not sure. And then she mixes it all together. And she kneads it and she, and, you know, she, she mixes it all up and then she sort of leaves it with a, a towel covering it and it rises. And after a while, she puts it in the oven, she bakes it, it comes out. It's fantastic. It tastes wonderful. Now, my wife is perfect, so the bread always comes out perfect, okay? It is always delicious. But have you ever bitten into a loaf of bread that wasn't fully mixed? You, you take this fresh baked bread, it looks fantastic, it looks delicious, and uh, it's fresh out of the oven, and it's steaming, and it's piping hot, and it just looks so good, and you, you just tear off a piece of it, and you bite into it, and your teeth sink right into a, a portion of it that's flour or yeast, or some other ingredient that didn't get fully mixed all the way, it's gross. It totally catches you off guard. What you expected, once you sink your teeth into it, is not what you find. On the outside, it looks wonderful, but on the inside, it's not. And do you know what it is that leads to that? It's a failure to make sure that the ingredients are fully mixed. See, to mix bread, to make bread, all of the ingredients that go into it have to come into complete contact with all of the other ingredients, so that the whole thing is uniform and consistent throughout. Now that is the nature of hypocrisy. That's what we encounter when we look at the spiritual disease, the sin of the heart that the Scriptures call hypocrisy. It looks good on the outside, and there might even be good character traits and qualities on the inside, but you will always discover something in there that doesn't honor the Lord. There is always something in there that has not come into full contact with the light of day, that has not been fully exposed to the Lord's Word, to the Gospel. We're going to encounter these guys for a second week in a row. And I want you to pay very careful attention to what Jesus says here, because the remedy to hypocrisy for them and for us is clearly presented in the Word this morning. Look with me, Matthew chapter 21. You'll recall that last week, Jesus comes to them, he confronts them, they ask him a question, by what authority, what name do you do this? And he says, I will tell you by what authority, what name I do this. If you can answer me one question, John the Baptist, was he real or was he fake? Was he from God or was he a fraud? Was it of man or was it 
of the Lord. Now, they didn't submit to John the Baptist's baptism because John the Baptist called them to repent. Now, all the people held him to be a prophet. So if they say that John the Baptist is just a normal man, that his whole message wasn't really from the Lord, that it was a fraud, they know that the crowds are going to be ticked off. So they don't want to be exposed before the crowds as not believing in the legitimacy of John the Baptist. But if they say that he was from the Lord, they know that Jesus is going to nail him to the wall and say, well, if it was from the Lord, why didn't you submit to it? Why didn't you get baptized? So their response is, we don't know. Jesus says to them, fine, if you can't figure that out, something so simple that the whole crowd here knows for a fact that he was from the Lord, if you can't figure that out, then I am also not going to tell you by what authority it is that I preach the gospel and do the things that I'm doing. Now, in our Bibles, there's a little headline there that goes on to say the parable of the two sons in the, in the vineyard or something to that effect. And so we think that we're automatically entering into a new train of thought, but we're not. See, the context is Jesus is going to drive the nail into the coffin. That previous dialogue that he had with them, he is going to clinch it with what he says to us this week. Now, here's what he says. Verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. Verse 30, he went to the other son and he said the same thing. And he answered, son number two said, I go, sir. But he didn't go. So here's the story. And you need to understand, vineyard isn't like a cool place where we go to get wine. In this day and age, vineyard was your family business. This is how you made your living. If you had a vineyard, it wasn't as some sort of a weekend thing that you go out and sample some cheese and wine and, and sort of uh, taste different beverages. Vineyard was something that you used to produce wine, but it was something that you got your livelihood off of. The reason that a family would own a vineyard is the same reason that any of us would go to work. Any of us have a nine-to-five job to provide for the family. The father says to his two sons, will you go into the vineyard to work? This isn't just like a hobby farm. This is how we live. This is how our family survives. Okay. So by entering into the labor that their father has asked them to do, they are saying to their father, we share your heart and we will engage in the labor that you have appointed for us to do. We will go into the vineyard for the betterment of the family. That's the idea. That's clearly what the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests would have gotten. There's a parable being set up here. There's an analogy and Jesus' statement is, you got two sons. The first son, he said, you know what? I'd rather be playing golf today. It's so beautiful outside. There are better things to do. I could go hiking. I could go bike riding. Forget it, Dad. I know that this is the family business. This is how we survive. This is how we make our living. But I'd rather go out and be playing games. So forget it. I'm out of here. I'm off. About halfway to the bicycle or halfway to the golf course, he stops and he thinks, my father loves me. He takes care of us. His heart is for the good of his family. That's, that's right. And I should do that. And so even though he told his dad, no way, he says, yes, I'll go. And he goes. Son number two says, no problem, dad. You're a great dad. I love you. Here's a coffee mug. says, world's best dad. You know how I feel about you. You're the best dad ever. I'm going. His dad says, gee, thanks, son. And as soon as his dad turns around and leaves, he's like, forget this. I'm out of here. And he really does go to the golf course or to hike or bike riding, whatever the case may be. 
Now, Jesus' statement is very clear. Who honored the Father's will? Who actually did what the Father asked? And they don't have to think about it. This is a heated discussion. They want to know what gives him the right to say the things he's saying. He says, you tell me, John the Baptist, real or fake? They say, well, we don't know, we don't know. They, you'll recall they pulled off to the side and they had this little conference. If we say this, we'll get in trouble. We can't say that. Well, what about this? No, that doesn't work. We don't know. So then Jesus turns around and says, let me tell you a story. Two sons. Dad asks them to work in the vineyard. Which son did what was right? There's no debate. There's no, let's huddle over here and figure out the right thing to do. They know that this is theological debate. They know they're in the midst of a heated discussion. They don't have to pause. They say emphatically, the first son did the will of the father. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's obvious. It's clear. The second son was a hypocrite. The first son blatantly rebelled, but ultimately went and did the will of the father. They know which son they are. They're the religious elites. They're the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders. These are the guys that work in the temple. So, though they're not perfect, though they may have sinned against God, ultimately, surely, we are the ones who are doing the will of the Father. We are the ones working in the temple. We are the ones that go to the synagogue. We're involved in the church services. We're involved in leading. We're the ones doing the will of the Father. We're son number one. That's what they have in their mind. Look at what Jesus says. He goes on, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, Jesus has just said, they, they make this statement thinking that they're the first son. The first son is the one who does the will of the Father. And Jesus has said, guess what? The tax collectors and the prostitutes, based on your answer to this parable, they go into heaven before you do. They're like the first son. And that must have blown them away. I mean, that statement right there, you guys think you're the first son. But I tell you the truth, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the people who sell their bodies for money and the people who sold out their countrymen for money, they're going to heaven before you. Now, surely the question that's on their mind is, how is this possible? What? I mean, even maybe a little bit of amusement. What? Those guys? Like, they're clearly sinners. How do you even get off saying that? Now, now we've entered into the preposterous. Look at what Jesus says is the reason. His statement here, verse 32, 4. Now, the four tells you the reason why. This is why Jesus is able to say that the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going to heaven ahead of the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes. His statement is, John, referencing John the Baptist, came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Now, the same guy that just a second ago, they couldn't figure out whether he was from the Lord or not, they couldn't figure out whether he was real or fake, whether he was a fraud or a legitimate prophet, Jesus' statement is, he came to you in the way of righteousness. These people consider themselves righteous, you would never catch them doing any business with a tax collector. You would never catch them ever going to visit a prostitute. You would never catch these guys in public doing anything that is wrong. They think they're righteous, but Jesus' statement is, John the Baptist came to you as a righteous person in the way of righteousness. This was a man 
who didn't put on fancy clothes. This was a man who didn't put on airs, who didn't make himself out to be something that he wasn't. He went out into the wilderness and he proclaimed the gospel. He said, the Messiah is coming. Repent of your sins. Make a straight path for the Lord. Get ready. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. People were coming to him. They're like, you're right. I've sinned. They were feeling the conviction of their waywardness and their rebellion against the Lord. They were coming to John the Baptist and he was baptizing them in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Matthew chapter 3. Don't flip there, but it makes the statement, the Pharisees and the scribes came to him. And his statement, John the Baptist's statement to the Pharisees and the scribes was, who warned you guys to flee the coming judgment? Almost a sense of disappointment, like, oh man, if you come forward, repent, I'm going to have to baptize you. Who, who gave you the heads up? How are you guys here hearing about this? And his statement is, if you want to be saved, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now the prostitutes are coming. They're repenting of their sins. John is baptizing them. The tax collectors are coming. They're repenting of their fraud and their extortion of their fellow men. And John is baptizing them. The Pharisees come and he says, repent. And they step back and say, what are you saying? What are you saying? We don't need to repent. And they don't submit to his baptism. His next statement is, there is one coming after me who is greater than me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he will baptize you with fire and the Spirit. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he is going to clear his threshing floor. The chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. What's John saying to these guys? There's a guy about to come. A judge, a savior, a king. Better recognize him. And here they are actually talking to the one about whom John is speaking. And they're asking him, who gives you the authority to do these things? John was righteous. He preached righteousness, and the tax collectors believed it, and the Pharisees believed it, and they repented, and they got baptized, and now they're placing their faith in the Lord, in Jesus Christ, and they're getting saved. John was so flawless in his presentation of the gospel that he preached things that you aren't supposed to preach. He said to Herod, you have your brother's wife for your own wife. This is wrong. It is unlawful for you to have her. And that, of course, ticked off Herodias, his wife. And so John was thrown into prison and ultimately beheaded as a result of his preaching of the gospel. So his credentials are impeccable. You can't impeach his character and you can't deny that he was a righteous man. Now, John was a righteous man, so righteous that he preached Things that the Pharisees weren't willing to preach. He confronted even King Herod in his sin. And Jesus is saying, he came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. His next statement is, look at what he says. Number two, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed him. 
What is the difference between the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees? you got three groups here. What's the difference? The prostitutes, let's, let's start by asking what do they have in common? The prostitutes sell their bodies for money against the word of God. The tax collectors extort and fraud their fellow man for money against the word of God. And guess what the Pharisees do? Remember, Jesus has just cleansed out the temple. The Pharisees sell the temple for money. They trade on the center of the worship of God for personal profit against the word of God. All three groups of people are selling something. What's the difference? The prostitutes and the tax collectors They know they're sinners. They recognize it, and they receive the grace of God. The Pharisees don't know themselves to be sinners, though they know what they are doing is clearly wrong. The difference here is that one group of people, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they are self-righteous. They don't recognize their need for God because they have made compromises with their walk with the Lord. That's the difference. They all are doing the same thing. Two groups of people say, we know we're wrong, and another group says, we're not that wrong. And Jesus' statement is, these guys go into the kingdom of heaven before you, and they saw it, and they still didn't believe. These guys have been preaching for years. Prostitutes, you need to stop being prostitutes. Tax collectors, you need to stop being tax collectors. You guys need to start living for the Lord. And for years, these people saw it, and they ignored it, and they paid no attention to it, and they went on with their way. John the Baptist comes. He preaches a righteous gospel. These guys get convicted. They repent. They enter into the baptism of John, and they're ultimately going to believe in Jesus and be saved. And Jesus' statement is, you guys saw fruit that was happening which you yourselves were never able to accomplish. And you knew what was happening. And even when you saw it happening, you still didn't change your minds. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they said, no way, we don't want the kingdom of God in our lives. But then they changed their minds and now they're saved. The Pharisees said, oh yes, we're Christians. But ultimately, they had other priorities than what God was asking for from them. They weren't giving their whole lives to the Lord. They looked good on the outside, but they were rotten on the inside. You know, the Scriptures actually talk about this at length. When we reviewed a number of those Scriptures last week, the Scriptures talk at length about the sin of hypocrisy. And it's dangerous because what it is, is you're presenting an external appearance, but there's a part of your heart that you're keeping back away from the Lord. Do you know what the remedy for hypocrisy is? Integrity. And I don't mean integrity in the sense that you tell the truth. I mean integrity in the sense that you not only tell the truth, but you're truthful with yourself in your heart. You see, all of us has to be surrendered over to the gospel. Just like that loaf of bread. Every aspect of Christ, everything that He is, must rule and hold sway in every part of our heart. There can be no keeping some part of ourselves away from the light of God's salvation. There can be no hiding some part of our character away in a deep, dark, private corner where the Lord isn't allowed to see it, where our brothers and sisters aren't allowed to see it, 
we know it's there. We cannot allow ourselves to say it's not that big of a deal. The scripture says that the opposite of hypocrisy is integrity in the sense that every part of you is consistent with every other part of you in embracing the gospel and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This word integrity is the solution. And essentially what it means is exactly the illustration that I've given to you, like a loaf of bread that's fully mixed. It's used in a number of places. In the New Testament, it's used, uh, you'll find it in Titus. Don't flip there, just listen to this. But Paul is exhorting Titus in his preaching. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity. That means everything that you teach, all that you proclaim, it has to be completely and totally consistent with the gospel. Now, it's also used to reference character. It's used here to reference the character of the teaching that's being offered. It is also used in the Old Testament to reference the character of people and even an entire nation. Don't flip there again, but in Judges chapter 9, you might recall Jerubbaal, also known as Gideon, he has died and his son by a concubine, Abimelech, has risen up and killed all of his brothers and sisters that he might seize the throne. And the youngest son, a guy by the name of Jotham, he, he manages to escape. And he goes out on a high hill overlooking the city and he says, hey, I just want to tell you guys something. If you are satisfied with this culprit, with this criminal, Abimelech, fine. He makes the statement. He says, now therefore, if you have acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbaal or Gideon, then so be it. His statement is, if you all did this together as one. In other words, if you were all united, if you were all consistent, if it was bred the whole way through, and all of you together trusted in this scoundrel Abimelech, so be it. This is what the idea of integrity means. Now, if we play the hypocrite, and there are multiple ways to do it, if we present one part of ourselves as one way to one group of people, And then we present another part of ourselves as something different to another group of people. If we wear masks, if we play games, the Scripture says ultimately that will result in destruction. Wisdom makes the statement in Proverbs, don't flip there again, the integrity, same word, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Now, This is the deal with prostitutes and tax collectors. Everybody said, you're a dirty sinner, and they didn't deny it. They didn't try to play themselves off as just going along to get along. They knew it was true. What they were doing was sinful, but they at least had the courage to be straight with themselves about their behavior. They knew that what they were doing was wrong. And the Scripture says, wisdom is this. If you have integrity, it will guide you. They knew what they were doing was wrong. So at the end of the day, when they go to sleep at night, they know when they close their eyes, it's going to come back. It's going to haunt them. We know we're doing wrong. And the Spirit is going to work in that heart. And wisdom from Proverbs says integrity will guide a person. But guess what if you don't have integrity? Guess what if you lie to yourself, if you attempt to justify yourself, if you will not be honest with yourself about how you're living? What is the ultimate outcome for that person? Same proverb goes on to say, the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. These guys, they came face to face with the one they claimed to worship. 
And their lives looked way better than the prostitutes and the tax collectors. But those guys were honest with themselves, whereas these guys, they reassured themselves. They weren't honest in their heart. They didn't allow themselves to be bothered by the blatant sins that they were engaging in in the temple. And guess what? Even though they looked good on the outside, even though the whole nation of Israel applauded them and said, yes, these guys are the holy ones, these guys are the elite religious leaders of our country, they were utterly broken. And having come face to face with Jesus, they can't recognize Him for who He is. And they can't bring their hearts to submit to Him and receive salvation. Their crookedness destroys them. So now we're all gathered here today. Let's be honest with ourselves. We all know that there are things in our life that we're ashamed of. We all know that there are things in our life that we don't want to see the light of day. And I want you to understand that so long as those things have been repented of and forsaken, we don't need to go around and sharing with everyone all of the laundry list of bad things that we've done over the course of our life. But if those sins still hold dominion in your life and you're keeping them tucked away, if they're still dragging you away from the presence of the Lord, if they're still enslaving you, and you don't bring those things out and have integrity with them, the warning of the Scriptures is ultimately they will destroy you. As we come to this text, the most obvious thing that we need to see here, the most obvious thing that presents itself to us from the Word, people who look good and present themselves as religious leaders are not to be trusted if they're not solid all the way through. That's the most obvious example. Jesus is trying to show the crowds not to trust these people. He's trying to show all those who are gathered there that the Pharisees and the religious elite can't be trusted because they don't truly do the will of the Father. So the first point of application as we look at this text this morning, it doesn't matter how good a guy looks on the outside. If he claims to present the truth of the Scriptures, if he claims to present the Word of God to you, and his life looks impeccable on the outside, you got to look deeper. The only person that can truly help you spiritually is a person that has integrity, that has allowed the Gospel to permeate every facet and every corner. It's not necessarily to say you're looking for a perfect man because there is no perfect man apart from the man Jesus Christ. But it's an individual who's truthful, who speaks truth in his heart, who's honest with himself and can be honest with you because of his faith in the cross. That's an individual you're looking for. Martin Luther read the Bible, came to the realization salvation is by faith. Pope said, no way, the church is how you get saved. You've got to put your faith in the church and the priests and all this religious establishment. Pope wears a nice pointy hat and has all these white shining garments. He looks good. He's got the Vatican, all this palace, all this magnificence behind him. On the exterior, he looks good. But when Martin Luther came to the Scriptures, he found that the Bible said salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. And so they dragged him into court for it. They took him and they held him up on trial and they accused him of being a heretic. Now, if you're a crowd watching this unfold, who looks like they're in charge? Obviously, the chief priests, the bishops, the cardinals, the pope. Who looks shiny? Who looks magnificent? Not this poor German monk. 
He doesn't look good at all. But who's holding to the truthfulness of Scriptures? They say to him, if you don't repent, it's going to cost you your life. Now up until this point, the question remains, has this just been a show? Has this just been to get attention? Has he just wanted to tickle our ears and rapture us with his fancy-sounding words? Or is there substance here? Because when you threaten a man with his life, that's when you find out what he really believes. Martin Luther's response, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures, or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone as it is obvious that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves numerous times. I consider myself convicted only by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is held captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and I will not recant. Because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. That last word is another word for integrity. It's not sound. There's no honor in that. It's not right. Here I stand. I can do no other, so may God help me. Of course, you know that is what broke the Catholic Church's hold on common people. When religious leaders come to you, they may look good, but you have to ask yourself, are they honest all the way through? Second thing, as we approach this text here, and this is the thing that ought to really concern us. Are we people that call ourselves Christian, that work really hard to look good on the outside, while in our private lives we're dishonoring the Lord? Sometimes churches make a great push for things like baptism and church membership. Sometimes churches push people to just join the church, just make yourself a part of church. And there's no real effort to scrutinize and to look and to make sure that there is a change of heart on the inside. I, uh, I know a friend who works at a church in Florida, a pastor at that church there, has a mantra. It looks good to the denomination if you have a lot of baptisms that you report back to the denomination every year. And so they have a mantra that they repeat amongst themselves as they encourage themselves. Get them in, get them wet. We ain't hit 300 yet. That's the chant that they offer. Our yearly goal is somewhere around 300 baptisms. Let's get them in and get them wet. It's a push for numbers without an honest analysis of what's truly on the inside. Is that where we are, First Baptist? And I don't think it's entirely your fault. If you have something that you're struggling with in your life that you're ashamed of, I think that there are others among us who may have made it difficult for you to be transparent with that. You see, if everyone presents themselves as holy and perfect and righteous, and if none of us are ever honest about where we're struggling and how we're struggling, you know the culture that is created is an oppressive one. Where we don't have the freedom to be gut-level honest with each other. 
And so it requires courage. Somebody has to have courage to acknowledge that they said something or that they did something or that there's some area of their life where they're struggling. Somebody's got to be the first one to trust that all their righteousness and all their acceptance is in Jesus Christ on the cross and to be able to speak in accordance with that, to break a culture of silence that oppresses us all and keeps us all in the shadows and in the closet. Somebody's going to have to act in faith. I got good news for that first someone. If you have the courage to confess and to acknowledge where you're struggling, you're the first one to receive the empowerment of the Spirit to help you break that strangle in your life. And you've got the opportunity and the privilege to be a guiding light and a help and a blessing to all the world. So if you're here today and you know there's some area of your life, an addiction or something that you struggle with that you're not telling us about, I, for one, will not judge you. I myself have struggled and continue to struggle in many areas. And if you were to share with me, I would not think any less of you because Jesus Christ thought so much of you. In love, he died for you. It doesn't really matter what I think and it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks. At the end of the day, Jesus Christ loves you. And he is the one for whom we live and for whom we die. The third thing that I would suggest, we've got to start breaking those strongholds in our lives because initial agreements are not enough to salvation. Don't miss this. The second son said, we go, sir, we go. And he didn't go. Those initial professions of faith are easy. Just come down, say a prayer. Come to a Saturday class. Get dunked in the baptistry. Those initial professions of faith are easy, but faith, saving faith, is the faith that persistently walks with the Lord no matter how difficult, no matter how hard. Be careful of initial agreements. The Scripture before us says that these guys made an initial commitment. At some point in their life, there was a fervor. At some point in their life, there was an excitement. Yes, I'm going to be a Pharisee. I'm going to serve God. But that was only in the beginning. And so for us, as we're gathered here today, we need to remember, initial agreements are good. You have to start somewhere. But initial agreements, if all they are is just something you did at the beginning, it's quite dangerous. Because initial agreements do not constitute the persistent faith that is necessary to salvation. We have to strive to walk daily with the Lord. It requires that we trust Him, that we place our faith in Him, and that we seek from Him all of our acceptance. And then we have to speak accordingly. A number of years ago, there was a horrible hurricane that slammed into New Orleans. The name of the hurricane was Hurricane Katrina. It devastated the city, completely flooded the Lower Ninth Ward, a community which was built below sea level. Houses were destroyed. Everything was wrecked. I was blessed and privileged to be a part of a group of people that went in to help repair. When water gets in, it soaks up inside the walls. The walls are rotten. The insulation is rotten. Uh, the two-by-four frames are, are soaked. You've got to rip off the sheetrock. You've got to basically take it all the way down to the studs. You've got to let it dry out. Can you imagine... If we were to go in 
to try and help these poor people. And we say, you know what? Your house has been flooded. It's been devastated. We're here to help you. We're here to bless you. And we began right away as Christian missionaries just building and working. And the homeowner was staying in a hotel, and they would come by on occasion to check on us in this really fancy, nice porch being built on the front of their house, and it's all brand new with fancy new porch furniture. And they're thinking, this looks really, really good. And they walk up around the porch, and it's all the nice new construction, fresh wood, looks great, solid, great looking to the eye. They open the front door, and it's still studs on the inside. There's no wall. There's no insulation. There's no electrical. There's no plumbing. They say, gee, thanks. This is great. Um, when are you going to get to the rest of the house? Can you imagine the stupidity if we were to say, Ah, oh, don't bother so much with that. You got a great looking front porch right here. This is New Orleans. We can sit out on the deck in the evening. We can eat gumbo and jambalaya. We don't need to be inside the house. We can, we can be here on the porch. Do you know what the homeowner would say? At the end of the day, when the sun goes down, I'm not sleeping on my front porch. At the end of the day, I have to live in my house. So you're going to have to fix the inside of the house. You know how you'd have to fix the inside of the house? You'd have to strip off the front porch to get back at the foundation, to get back at the bare bones, blood and guts of what's going on inside that house. And the same is true for us. We're here today. I want to encourage you. You're beautiful people. The Lord loves you. We all have wonderful front porches. But there might be some rottenness inside that needs to be attended to. My prayer for you is that you would not be ashamed, but you would step out in faith and say, Lord, deal with the inside. Even if it means I've got to strip off that great looking front porch. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word to us. We thank you, Father, for your son Jesus and his confrontation with the hypocrites. Lord, we thank you that because of what you did for us on the cross, we don't have to be hypocrites anymore. Because it no longer matters what the world thinks of us and no longer matters the appearance that we present to our neighbors and our friends, those we go to work with. Lord, all that matters is you and what you think, and you see it all anyways. We pray, Father, that we would stand before you in honesty and integrity and that we would allow you to work in our lives. Father, we pray, God, that we would not continue to hide this crookedness. We pray, Lord, that we would escape the path of destruction. But we know only you can do this in our hearts. So have your way among us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.